you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How can normal public schools integrate STEM subjects deep into their curriculum? Why would a fine arts teacher need to know how to use an oscilloscope? What is an oscilloscope anyway? Listen in for the exciting answers in today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. Today, I'm talking to an innovative public school administrator whose favorite quote is by a Frenchman, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather the wood or divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. I couldn't agree more. There's a deep drive inside of us to face the unknown and to find the courage to explore it. Yet for too long we've tried to tame this desire and keep the fires of passion quietly smoldering in a corner. But here at Tabletop Inventing, we fan the flames until the fires of curiosity begin to light children from the inside. A deep and burning curiosity will drive a student to explore the unknown and to carve out a space for themselves in this frontier. The fires of curiosity and the yearning for the vast and endless sea drive everything we do here at Tabletop Inventing. The fires burn particularly brightly at our inventors boot camps every summer. I'm always excited to see the new ideas and creative machines that kids build and we always have one or two students that walk in the door as an average child and leave with their curiosity brightly burning. To find out more about the inventors boot camp visit ttinvent.com forward slash bootcamp now or you can just visit ttinvent.com and click the Inventors Bootcamp button. Today, we get to take a peek into the mind and heart of a true lead learner from an elementary school in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Many administrators claim the title of lead learner, but few take it to the heights Alma Ripley has. My guest today is Alma Ripley. Alma is currently an administrator, and she's been an administrator in elementary schools for about 10 years. She started as an elementary teacher, and she taught for about 12 years in Texas, and she's been an administrator both in Texas and New Mexico, and she's taught in private schools and in public schools, and she's now involved in something she calls STEM trajectory. So Alma, tell us a little more about yourself. Thank you, Steve. I have uh, come from Texas, enjoyed all of my experiences as administrator in Texas. When I moved to New Mexico, I came in as a principal for a private school and uh, worked in the private school arena for a couple of years. My love is public education, and, and I think I decided that or found that out after I served in the private sector for a few years. Moved back into public school administration, and over the last couple of years, as an administrator with the public schools, I've tried to really figure out what is the best way to teach, to expose kids to learning to all of the standards that we now have to deal with. So 
I'd say over the last couple of years is when my heart and my passion has evolved into trying to figure out a new way of teaching, a new way of, of structuring classroom lessons. So was there a particular event or something that triggered you to move from the private sector to the public sector, or was it just a result of thinking over time and deciding that this is where you could contribute the most? I think it was more of a result of thinking over time. My, I have a leadership style that leads itself toward a lot of reflective thinking and just trying to envision or understand the learning, the way that students learn. And in the public sector, identifying the different subgroups, beginning to understand the characteristics of those subgroups, and be able to make a difference in the lives of students, no matter what their demographics are, no matter what their English language acquisition is. And I think that's what brought me back into the public school arena. So do you guys have a fairly high rate of non-native English speakers in your schools? Yes, we do. In New Mexico and in and, and Albuquerque Public Schools, the schools that are, are part of our new trajectory are all very high numbers of English language learner students, low socioeconomic demographics. And then, you know, that was I guess that was the basis for my trying to start this vision of these are the students whose skills by, you know, research shows us that these are the students that learn best by hands-on, by projects, by understanding not necessarily the content, but understanding the process and, and actually being able to touch and feel what they're learning and apply their skill set to a project. You see, you sparked a question in my mind that's related to what you just said, and this is my inexperience with the public school system. Do you notice a difference in students' acquisition of knowledge or excelling in a particular subject between sort of English writing, reading-based subjects and math, science, technical-based subjects, if you're a non-native English speaker? Yes, I, I do believe that there is a difference in uh, English language learners that you do see, I do see a lot of them excelling in math or, you know, being more proficient in it because it, it hasn't been and is not really approached as a literacy content area. Now, of course, as we move into Common Core and we move into all of the different standards that we're looking at, I think it segues perfectly into the expectations of these students, these English language learner students, these students, low socioeconomic students, to be able to succeed in literacy and in math uh, as they're acquiring English because of project-based opportunities. Again, not knowing the, the background here, is there any research that discusses success in STEM accelerating success in other areas as the confidence grows? Well, that you got me there. I have not researched that. <laughs> I, I can prove to you that the hook is there. You know, and I, I really have not seen this type of vision or this type of project-based learning partnerships. I haven't seen that out there. This seems to be a, a new concept for growing students. One of the things maybe that I could bring in is the study of math mathematics and where it's come from and the, the proof that projects and project-based stories and mathematical practices are much easier to attain and retain with English language learners than just the 20th century delivery of instruction of, I'm going to deliver you this content, and, and it's definitely segregated between today we'll learn algebra, tomorrow geometry, etc., and then be able to give it back in a worksheet or a test versus now the embracing of all of the disciplines and bringing in the literacy and the speaking and listening skills, bringing in the science and the social studies are all inclusive of project-based learning, especially the way we are 
rolling out STEM trajectory is taking all of the standards, putting them together, and then sharing and giving evidence to the teachers and the schools that are joining our partnerships, the evidence they need that, yes, STEM is all-inclusive. It's not just science, technology, engineering, and math, and it's not just aligned with technology and mathematics. It has to be aligned with language arts and social studies and every content discipline. So tell me a little more about how you guys do that. Like, What kinds of projects do you use to blend those two types of or what we consider sort of separate subjects. How do you guys blend those? Well, to begin with, one of our most focused projects that we have been rolling out the last year is is our STEM days. And uh, those are days where I coordinate and bring in, we feature a high school and we invite elementary and middle schools to come in the form of a field trip to come to the STEM day. At the STEM days, the high schools do several different events, one of which is a rocket launch event that they do in the morning. A week prior to that, we have a family night where the high school elementary students and their parents and mid-school students and their parents to come to the high school. And the cadets, we're, you know, through the JROTC program at this time, help these students and parents build rockets that are then launched at the STEM day. All of that, if you go back and look at all of the standards, it's collaboration, it's cross-content with bringing in students and their parents hands-on. Let me keep going. (laughs) With the high-altitude balloon launch, it impacts not only the high school that's actually doing the launch, you know, with filling the balloons with the helium and measuring and, and attaching the train and the payloads and things like that. It evolves down into the middle schools and down into the elementary schools where the lessons that we share with them are background and vocabulary. We take them into reading chapter books about space, about balloon exploration, have them go online and research try to get their arms around what's going on when they actually come and see the launch. Then when they get there, they've already been studied. They've always had lessons that are rolled out in the language arts classes. Science at the elementary level is students have, you know, having conversations with the students about what do they want to know. From there, helping them develop something that they can actually build an experimental payload. I had a, a class this year that built a wonderful payload because they were curious about X-rays and gamma rays and alpha rays. So Together, they researched, they did a lot of reading, a lot of studying about that, and they actually, with the partnerships of New Mexico Space Studies, which are our community partner and some of the high school students, they built this payload. We put some x-ray film in a canister and we flew it and then recovered it as the high school kids learn how to recover and how to track using amateur radio. It's recovered. We brought the payload back, and the elementary schools got to analyze it. Another partner with us is UNM that helps us with resources like the microscopes and things like that. As I've been listening to this, I was actually curious, do any of the high schools that you work with use 3D printers? You mentioned robotics earlier. Mm -hmm. What, What kinds of other technologies do the students get exposed to from your elementary school? Well, you mentioned 3D printers. That was something the component came on this year with one of our high schools, West Mesa High School, in developing their continuous improvement model using STEM trajectory. They did a, a balloon launch, and from that, the kids decided, well, let's do this, and they, they wanted to build a CubeSat. 
uh, balloon sad, if you will. So with the kids' interest in the hook and curiosity and what they could do to make it more lightweight, more conducive, then that's when the instructor said, okay, I'll buy a 3D printer. And that 3D printer then served as helping them. They designed the balloon sat, which was a, a double size of a cube sat. And that's where they flew all of their electronic components in when they did the balloon launch last August. So the yes, they've been using the 3D printer. Each one of the lessons in elementary and mid and high school is not an end-all lesson. It's not a a balloon launch, and then that's it, and we'll go back to our regular way of teaching. It's a continuous improvement where they build, they fly, or they do whatever the project is. Then they come back, and through the a lot of the skills that we have to begin to teach them now in education, collaborate with each other, talk to each other, decide what worked and what didn't work, and then, then come up with the next steps of what they're going to do next time to make it even better, to gather more data or whatever they need to do to make it better. Wow, I love it. So I'm going to start meddling now. Um, okay. <laughs> when, you uh, do make me feel comfortable. I appreciate it. When you started getting these ideas about the STEM trajectory, did all of your teachers jump on board and say, yay, let's do this, or did you have any kind of pushing back saying, ah, I don't know about that? Oh, that's a good question for me. No, I didn't have them jump on, and, and that was my intent all along. I strategically rolled out the concepts one at a time with getting the teachers, the schools, the kids. My buzzword is getting them hooked or getting them curious about what's going on. Last year, the high school supported me in my very first STEM day here at my elementary school, and that in itself was designed to get the teachers hooked, and it worked perfectly. Prior to the STEM day, I believe it was in April last year, I had two teachers that were directly involved with supporting my ideas and, and my forwarding of the trajectory. And after we had the STEM day, I created, I had teachers come and were interested in finding out more about where this was going. But this school year, we have had one third grade teacher that is a direct STEM teacher aligned with the trajectory. We have three fourth grade and three fifth grade teachers, plus one fourth grade, fifth grade combo special ed teacher. Next year, it's growing even more. We're growing, going to go down into first grade. But it's, it's not by standing at a staff meeting and say, guess what? We're going to now be a STEM school. It's one by one when the teachers come to me and they express interest or curiosity. Now, I've had teachers that have come on board that I waited until they came and said, why are you leaving me out? <laughs> so. That's a powerful motivator sometimes, actually. It is. It really is. And that works. This, it's worked the same way just beautifully with as I go and I, I talk to other elementary schools to share with them what's going on and how they can become a part of it in the middle schools. Some schools will do it just because they think they should. And I've had a couple of schools that say, well, that might be interesting, but I got to I really have to sit back and I don't to or my teachers you know they think they have too much on their plate and an example this year when I did my STEM day here at Carlos Ray in February they were, I invited an elementary school that's oh, about a mile from us and they came and what I did is I had a fourth grade teacher and fifth grade teacher that are 100% STEM focused teachers they presented story projects story projects are a, a great project-based learning activity that's developed by a company called mid-school math and we've had a lot of training with them in the last couple of years but they presented their story projects to the visiting schools 
So the schools that came to Carlos Rey, the kids actually, they sat in the cafeteria and my teachers taught the lesson. So it was an hour lesson. So the kids actually got to go through a story project. And the result, you know, there were so many multi-levels of the results. But one result was that particular school's administrator coming to me and saying, that was absolutely wonderful for you to model that and for us to see it in action. So they're on board with us for next year. Wow. So does this happen Several times a year, you just have teachers come to you periodically and you start helping them connect with the system you're putting together. Now, is there like a whole curriculum around this or is this something that that you guys are working together to create? That's a great question. We are working together to create it. And the reason is because it does, there is no canned curriculum for this. And even to say that we might consider building a canned curriculum for it, I think it would be very difficult to do because of the different philosophies, the different approaches of the different administrators at the different schools. I have a middle school that's very interested and has come on board with STEM trajectory, but they're not interested at all in the direction that we're marketing at this time, which is the robotics and the high-altitude balloon, because they're a fine arts school and they have a lot of pride in their fine arts. But I'm helping them to see how joining the STEM trajectory and doing the project base can be just as effective in a school that has a priority of fine arts because of all of the science and the things that go along with music, the you know oscilloscopes and, and the, the sound waves and things like that. So we're just building it as we go based on curiosity and based on just the helping teachers and administrators here and the, the vision around how they can accomplish these things. You have no idea how big of a smile I just got when you said oscilloscope because hearing an elementary <laughs> Uh, administrators say the word oscilloscope is just not something you hear all the time. Now, I love oscilloscopes. I'm a physicist. I know exactly how to use one. They're powerful, uh, very useful tools, but it's not something you see very often in an elementary school, but they're not so complicated that you can't. It just, we don't normally see that. Exactly. And that that's all part of this also. We're raising our teachers to be able to understand things that you don't commonly see in elementary school. You don't see fourth graders soldering very often. But I have three fourth grade classes that you could walk in tomorrow and they could show you how to solder. And it's important. The small picture is, is important because of the project-based learning and the kids getting the hook and curiosity and the ability to apply what they've learned. They have to learn the math standards. But in order to learn the math standards and to apply them is the next step to proficiency. So as the kids are building these robotics, these we, we use C-Perch through the AUVSI, the Unmanned Vehicle Systems Foundation, and the C-Perch for this particular project. But as the kids build those, they're going to have to know how to measure. They're going to have to know how to be with precision. They're going to have to have those mathematical practices that, that we work on all the time to be able to construct viable arguments, to be able to talk to their classmates in a way that they can accept others' points of view and be able to stand alone with arguing, saying, no, you don't cut it at five and a half, you have to cut it at five and a quarter. And learning all of those skills that I did not grow up learning any of those. I grew up in a content-based education arena where I learned algebra and geometry and calculus and the 21st century, the the movement certainly has gone to, if we're going to have these kids ready for the workforce and ready to take care of us when we retire, they have to be able to know how the process works. So exposing them to soldering irons, exposing them to oscilloscopes, exposing them to telemetry. So that's another big component of what we're doing, high schools, middle schools, and elementary schools. All different levels, we're taking the telemetry that we receive from the high-altitude balloon missions 
and teaching the kids at the different level, the kids at the elementary level, to be able to take two, to, to analyze two different components and to blend them together on a grid, an XY axis. Middle schools to take those and create their own questions. High schools to find anomalies, to find things that should not have happened you know, according to the spreadsheet, according to the data that they've received. That was interesting. The high school last year, they discovered the tropopause, which was the very first time that they found out what that was. And it was only because, not because they read about it in a textbook, but because they saw the real-time telemetry and they were going through a lesson of how to analyze the data. And they noticed that the balloon, the flight, the vortex didn't behave in the same way that it should behave at a certain altitude. The temperature became warmer and it began to spiral within itself. And nobody knew why it was doing that. So we called in a, a good friend that works at NOAA in Oklahoma who came in and helped them understand, hey, you guys discovered the tropopause, which they will never forget that. But I'm not sure that I ever knew what a tropopause was when I was in school. Well, that's really interesting what you said about uh, finding that anomaly because, mm -hmm. I mean, as a scientist, those are the things you look for. Those are the ones that are interesting. Everything else is kind of boring. If you've seen right. it before and it's about the same, then it's all something that someone else has already discovered. It's when you see the new thing that's like, huh, it's the real head scratcher. You know, why did that happen? Mm -hmm. Those are the interesting ones. I mean, I mean, then that's how I knew I had a PhD thesis when I started looking at the data and realized that all of the papers I had read did not describe the data I saw. Uh -huh. See, so, that's, yeah, they, we're growing those students to develop those skills to move into those uh, physics positions. Well, that's wonderful. I want to take a little bit of a left-hand turn here and head toward a couple of questions that we always like to ask before we uh, finish our interview. And the first one is, given the digital backdrop, Google, Wikipedia, all the search tools that are out there, what does it mean in that environment with all those tools? What does it mean to be, quote, educated? Well... Referring to, to Google and, and things like that, that is uh, the direction that we as teachers and educators want our kids to understand, understand how to be able to access information and research at the drop of a hat, you know, quickly. I think the more important thing for kids to be able to understand is, yes, you have immediate access to information. You can find out anything. But two things are are critical in this day and time. Your question to me was the way that kids approach it. Well, I, you know, I don't have to learn how to research in a library or I don't have to learn how to how to do this because all I have to do is get on my iPhone and Google. But the things that have to be taught is that not everything you find on Google, not everything you're going to find on on the internet is true. And especially at the elementary level, it's difficult to help them shift paradigm to see that. It's something that I believe, and I've had conversations with administrators at middle schools and high schools, that it needs to be internalized at the elementary level. Not everything out there is true. And also, I guess the other part of an education and all of the immediate technology that's there, it's important for our kids to know how to access content and information, but they also have to learn the process of thinking through things themselves. And that's something that I think we've gotten away from, and we have to swing that pendulum back. An example, let me think. I may be going off a little bit on, on how I'm answering it, but all of the technology that's out there today, it's amazing. It's the speed of light, the cell phones and iPads, et cetera. And our kids know how to use them. They know how to work a cell phone and an iPad. The problem is now that our kids don't understand what a cell phone is. 
and they don't understand how an iPad is created and how it communicates. And in order for us to be really prepared to send our, our kindergartners this year, I think they graduate from high school in 2027, and when we send those kindergartners off, we have to have them prepared to understand not only the technology that we have today and tomorrow that we still don't know is out there, but they have to be able to swing the pendulum back and to be able to create new ideas and new understandings of the basis of how to build them, what it is, two-way communication, how it communicates, you know, understand computer, just language, you know, and, and coding and things like that. And I know I'm when I talk to other elementary schools and say, you know, we're, we have partnered with our high school, West Mesa, uh, no, Valley High School has a cadet that he and I together have been, well, Actually, he's been doing more in the studying than I have, but studying Python and how to write Python programming language to use in a Raspberry Pi. And the whole link behind that is at the end of the year, we're going to have our elementary, our fifth grade students, learning just enough for them to be curious and hooked on computer programming and so they can move into mid-school and they already have some of the skills and mostly, mainly, they have the curiosity to be able to listen and to help internalize things that they're going to have to learn. It's kind of a rambling sentence. <laughs> well, I was thinking of listening to your response there and thinking this through a little bit. It reminds me of something I heard not too long ago. One of the issues we're starting to face in the society is that there are a lot of black boxes. You mentioned the cell phone, and the cell mm -hmm. phone is a great big black box. Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand how it works, I mean, any black box can be very, very powerful to help you, but it could also be used to exploit you. Right. And the fewer black boxes there are, the harder it is to exploit a, a group of people. And so mm -hmm. uh, it's important, I think, as we go through into this new dawning of technology to understand enough of what's there to know you know, when something is true or false, like you said, understanding that the net just provides a portal for information to come across, but it doesn't provide a filter to tell you whether how high the integrity is of that information. Right. And to understand the backbone that kind of carries all this information back and forth, this thing we call the internet and, you know, mm -hmm. cell phones and all of the, the uplinks and downlinks and you know, service providers, you know, what all of that is, you know, what is an HTTP anyway? What is HTML? You know, if you mm -hmm. understand those different pieces, I mean, you don't have to be a deep expert at it, but knowing mm -hmm. that it's not black magic, that mm -hmm. there is something there, that, and that if you really wanted to know, you could go mm -hmm. find the answer. And having a, a group of students that's trained to navigate that environment is very powerful. And I'm really excited to hear you guys are pursuing that. And like I said, I'm still I'm still humming about the oscilloscope back there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, well, I, I use an oscilloscope so much uh, in the lab when I'm that. I mean, it's almost an extension of my normal everyday life, like a cell phone. Right. Right. So. As we wrap up here, and I know that uh, we gave you a little bit of a uh, heads up on this last question, what is the purpose of an education? As you think back across the, your years and as an administrator and as a teacher in the last couple of years, you know, and with the STEM trajectory, what is the purpose of an education? Steve, I really believe that the purpose of an education is no longer to master content. purpose of an education is to be able to understand the process or to be able to navigate the behavior that you have in order to accomplish something. I'm hoping that I'm addressing this in the direction that you were wanting me to, but I think that uh, our educational arena has shifted from kids learning how to find information to kids learning about information and the information highway and also being able to succeed with those complex standards or skill sets, the learning to persevere when solving problems, learning that there are different entry points to solving a problem. 
That's the direction that we have to move toward in education. And then it's so important in an education for kids to be able to learn how to work together. I know you hear that all the time, and it's a cliche, and I know that, you know, we talk about working together and as a result, you know, to be able to work in the 21st century workforce. But if you only do that occasionally or if you only do that as an end-all project in middle school or high school, then I think that we're missing the boat. And I think as young, and we have witnessed that here at an elementary school, that, that we have even begun to have our kindergarten teachers, who are slowly becoming hooked on this trajectory, say that they are learning how to teach the children or how to facilitate a lesson where the kids learn how to converse, to construct arguments that they believe they're right and to critique the reasoning of others. All of those things are things that even in the universities that the teachers aren't, they're not receiving all of that training in. It's slowly shifting to things like that. But again, I think if I were to address what does it mean to be educated or what is an education, I believe that that is what an education must be for a child. So I appreciate you putting so much thought into this. Certainly you you thought about this ahead of time. I hear a lot of answers to this, you know, yeah. varying from preparing us to the workforce to, mm-hmm. you know, education is its own end. I mean, I hear mm-hmm. a whole spectrum of answers for this, but certainly a large component of it, particularly from the perspective of a, a public school, is to prepare students for the world that they come are coming into. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the effort that you guys are putting into this, and I certainly applaud you for taking some unusual steps to see what is out there and to proceed in, honestly, into the unknown a little bit. That's Uh, very true. (laughs) That's a a lot of hard work to jump off into the unknown like that. And Mm -hmm. so two thumbs up to you guys for doing that. And thank you so much for taking some time to share your experience and talk to us about what you guys are doing in your school system. I know that there will be many other school systems out there who will be interested in what you guys are doing. And we'll be in touch with you a little bit to share some of the resources that you guys have so that when people come across the podcast, they'll be able to look a little deeper into this. But thank you so much, Alma, for taking a few minutes today to uh, to interview with us. Well, absolutely, and I look forward to it. I get excited and I get get all hyper to share when I get to share about our initiative and to share the results of it and how it grows and how you grow it one teacher at a time, one school at a time, one student at a time. Well, I can definitely tell there's a lot of passion behind that, and yeah. uh, we certainly understand that here as a startup at Tabletop Inventing. That's what fuels you very often when people tell you you can't do that, and you say, well, just watch me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that seems to be my character. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alma. All right. Well, thank you. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com podcast. Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, 
what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students?